You're listening to Uptown Radio. It's Friday, April 17th, 2020. I'm Megan Cattell. And I'm Cecily Moran. Some city public housing residents are threatening a rent strike. They say living conditions are putting them at increased risk from the coronavirus. We already are exposed to mold, rodents, elevators that don't work. And now we have a pandemic on top of this. What are we to do? The economic fallout from the pandemic threatens neighborhood fixtures like churches and Italian food stores. This is the first time that uh, I've ever experienced anything like this. I know my uncles, they both passed, but they had told me that going through the depression that it was uh, challenging. And it seems like that's what we're going through now. Even under social distancing, New Yorkers make a show of solidarity from the safety of their windows. Is it time now? All that and more on Uptown Radio. But first, the news. From Columbia Radio News in New York, I'm Sarah Gelbard. As of 8 p.m. today, New Yorkers are legally required to wear face coverings in public spaces like grocery stores, where social distancing is difficult to maintain. Governor Andrew Cuomo announced today the number of deaths in New York from coronavirus has fallen from 778 on Monday to 630 yesterday. For now, the hospitalization rate curve remains flat. Fewer people in the hospital, fewer people being intubated, uh, but still 2,000 people walking in the door. In New Jersey, there was a spike in deaths this week, placing it just behind New York with the second highest death toll in the United States at over 3,000. This morning, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio emphasized a need for expanded testing. We are not just sitting back waiting because we've been waiting a long time for that federal help. It still hasn't come. We're taking matters into our own hands more and more. We finally found a way to get a large number of test kits on the open market. We finally found a way to produce our own here in New York City. He announced that three new testing centers would open today in Brooklyn, the Bronx, and Staten Island. Two testing centers will open Monday in Harlem and Queens. Cuomo said New York will need fiscal assistance from the federal government to make up for lost tax revenue. This follows an announcement from Mayor de Blasio that New York City will have to cut more than $2 billion of municipal services for the year. The New York Times reports that public pools will be closed, fewer police officers will monitor traffic, and trash pickups will be reduced. Expect rain this evening and tomorrow with a high of 51 and a low of 40. In brighter news, NASA astronaut Jessica Muir spoke with New York City high school students from aboard her spacecraft last month. At 1.16 a.m. this morning, after more than 200 days orbiting in space, she returned to Earth with a safe landing of the Soyuz MS-15 spacecraft. Sarah Gelbard, Columbia Radio News. This is Uptown Radio. I'm Megan Cattell. And I'm Cecily Moran. Over 5 million Americans filed for unemployment this week. That's in addition to the 22 million who have filed since the start of the pandemic. But as high as that number is, it may underestimate the actual number of jobs lost. David Berger is professor of economics at Duke University. He says the problem begins with filing for benefits. I don't know if you've tried to file for unemployment recently, but it's, you know, my wife has and I, you know, it's kind of been eye opening as an economist and I'm seeing how it actually works. It's can be a bit of a disaster. So, you know, typically the take-up rates, meaning the fraction of people who actually are eligible who actually get unemployment, is usually only 50 to 70 percent. So we're like, you know, around between 15 and 20 percent unemployment rates right now, which is, I mean, 
way higher than we've ever had since the Great Depression. And that is unprecedented. You said it since the Great Depression? Yeah, since the 30s. I mean, you know, in the, in the mid-70s, in the 80s recession, things went up to about 11%. Just to get like a better sense of um, the scale of this, do you have any numbers top of mind uh, to compare to from the recession in 2008? These are, it's significantly more. I want to say at least 40% more. And I think the bigger issue is the velocity. I mean, just to put in perspective, the first week, three weeks ago, when we started seeing really big claims, you know, 6 million uh, a week, I mean, that's roughly speaking the same amount of job loss we saw, you know, for the first six months of the Great Recession. So stuff we were seeing in one week was stuff was taking six months. And part of the problem is, you know, now we have to get unemployment through the states because the way unemployment insurance works, they tax employers um, in good times. And so then they use that money to fund unemployment insurance. But like some states, like in North Carolina, the max benefit you can get is $350 a week. And so it's really exposed a lot of like cracks in the system because, I mean, particularly with some of these new rules, like they're, they're very well set up, A, to be stingy about benefits. And then moreover... You know, all these new exceptions for sort of like contingent workers, rideshare workers, things like that they're not set up for. They just don't have the infrastructure and then people aren't at work. And so, you know, people are calling and sitting on hold for two hours and then it hangs up. So, I mean, it's, it's a disaster. Yeah, it's very complicated and, and it's revealing a lot of flaws within the system and the relationship between the federal and state regulations. Absolutely. I mean, we, we defer to the states for these programs. I mean, just to, con con you know, contrast, say, Canada... They have this benefit called CREB, where basically every week they're just depositing $500 to everyone. And it's supposed to be this honor system. And it, you know, it shows up one day later. None of the in administrative delays like we have in the United States with like physical checks with people's signatures on them. I mean, it's amazing. So I wanted to jump back to what you were saying about part-time workers or gig workers, um, also people who are undocumented. Do the current numbers account for any of that? Um, and if not... How can we try and get more accurate numbers around that? The numbers are not accurate. I mean, particularly for undocumented workers. I mean, it's just very difficult to ask them in any, even in good times, to liaise with the state. So it's very difficult to get good numbers on that. For the gig workers, historically, I mean, they're supposed to be eligible. However, you know, given that they're typically not eligible, it's likely that the many of their claims are being denied. So hopefully, the idea hopefully would be that the they are applying, so they would show up in the initial claims. They're claiming it, but they may not be actually getting the benefits. So I, I think we're probably picking up the gig workers, but the undocumented workers were almost certainly not. What are what do you think are some of the easier thresholds that the the country can overcome to make sure that people can sign up, and thereby getting a more accurate reading of who is unemployed. I mean, I think at the state level, because these are all done at the state level, they just have to be way, whatever the institutional bottlenecks are, I mean, like those kind of the checks that they're doing, they need to just override them and just give the benefits and then we can check later. Send, send the money and ask questions later. Well, David, thank you so much for helping to break down a very complicated issue and uh, giving us more insights into uh, what's working, what's not. Sure, happy to do it. Uh, thanks for doing things like this. May 1st is usually the deadline for colleges to win over the hearts, minds, and wallets of prospective students. But during this pandemic, admissions offices can't hold any in-person events. Reporter Tay Glass looks at how some colleges are trying to close the deal with applicants remotely. For schools across the country, April is their big opportunity to charm students they've accepted. 
Phoebe Kingsack works in admissions at NYU. Swag is involved, meeting with faculty, current students, getting to see facilities like the residence halls. Those strategies aren't possible anymore. So instead, schools are going virtual. NYU's InstaVideo shows time-lapse shots of students studying and smiling. This, along with one-on-one -on -one video chats and virtual tours, are part of an online strategy schools are using to keep their yield rate up. The yield rate is the percentage of students who accept a school's offer of admission. Usually, the harder it is to get into a school, the higher their yield rate. I always equate it to dating. Like, NYU is the popular boy on the varsity teams, and they're just looking your way and saying, hi, how's your day? And that means so much more than the nerdy guy who's your best friend in band. Schools like NYU have a certain cachet and aren't too worried. But what about your best friend in band? Sean Ulrichsen works at Bethel University, a small Christian school in Minnesota. The community is, in my unbiased opinion, <laughs> it's really second to none. Bethel is hosting virtual coffee dates with groups of prospective students. Paulo Bilkstein is a professor at Columbia University's Teachers College. He says small colleges are in a tough position. Kind of mid-range colleges or smaller colleges will have a harder time attracting students that might not even know much about those places. So schools like Bethel University are hoping their personality shines through online. Tay Glass, Columbia Radio News. The half a million New Yorkers who live in public housing have been disproportionately affected by the coronavirus. They tend to be older, work in essential jobs that can expose them to the virus, and have pre-existing health conditions. But residents say the condition of the buildings they live in are also putting them at risk. As Wilwaukee reports, some are now considering withholding their rent until their concerns are addressed. Mayor Bill de Blasio asked the federal government last week to suspend rents in New York City Housing Authority facilities. He hasn't gotten near an answer yet, but some NYCHA residents are ready to take matters into their own hands. Power up, let's go! That's right, power up, let's go, unite! About 70 people, mostly NYCHA residents, recently got together virtually to talk about the conditions of NYCHA buildings and apartments, which have long been a problem. But residents say those poor conditions are now making coping with COVID-19 more difficult. Lakeisha Taylor lives in the Holmes Towers on the Upper East Side. We already are exposed to mold, rodents, elevators that don't work. And now we have a pandemic on top of this. What are we to do? This is just, just exposing the problems that we face as a NYCHA resident. For example, how can you socially distance yourself in a 25-story building with only one working elevator? In 2018, the city found that 83% of surveyed NYCHA units were in need of severe repairs, broken appliances, mold outbreaks, rodent infestations, and others. But NYCHA's funding still didn't increase in this year's budget. So community organizers are now encouraging residents to withhold their rent. Donnelly Rodriguez is a law student and an organizer for the Justice for All Coalition. We've been neglected, we've been oppressed, we're living in these deplorable conditions. We need a political solution, and this is how you force the issue. New York State property laws grant tenants the right to organize and withhold rents if landlords don't respond to their request for repairs. But it's risky. If landlords take them to court and win, tenants will owe back rent and could be evicted. New York has placed evictions on hold for three months due to coronavirus, but some tenants have already started withholding their rent. Hello, good evening everyone. 
Kimberly Tyree hasn't paid rent in three years because of what she calls deplorable living conditions. During this pandemic, she's forced to spend most of her time in her apartment. And how I've been impacted during the coronavirus, it has gotten worse. I have been in my apartment since February of 2020 without an oven, with leaks. She had a court date in April for non-payment, but that got pushed back. So she's now trying to organize her building, the Jefferson Houses in East Harlem. I plan to have many town halls and put a crayon marker poster outside my window stating that I'm on a rent strike and I told them I am not paying them until my repairs are done. But the coronavirus is also impacting NYCHA's ability to make repairs. A spokesperson for the Housing Authority said in an email that they're just completing emergency repairs for issues like water and gas leaks, non-working stoves, or rodent infestations. She also says crews are cleaning building common areas three times a day and senior centers five times a day, protocols that exceed the Department of Health standards. But residents say those cleanings aren't happening. Shelby Garner works in community affairs for Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney. We heard that residents were not seeing the cleaning happening to the extent that Nitrous was saying it was happening, that they did not feel that the disinfecting protocols were being implemented. Representative Maloney wrote a letter last week calling for NYCHA to better protect residents during the COVID-19 pandemic. Donnelly Rodriguez says now is the time to put pressure on lawmakers to make changes and that more people striking means more leverage. A hundred is stronger than one, a thousand is stronger than a hundred. NYCHA will not be evicting people in mass. But for now, it's still unclear just how many NYCHA tenants might actually join a strike. Will Walkie, Columbia Radio News. This week, Massachusetts and San Francisco are increasing efforts to slow the spread of COVID-19 through something called contact tracing. It's a method to track everyone who was in contact with someone who was tested positive for coronavirus. But could it be effective in New York City? This morning, I spoke with Dr. Henry Raymond, an epidemiologist at the Rutgers School of Public Health, from his home in Hopewell, New Jersey. I asked him what's needed to make contact tracing effective in the U.S. at this point. This is a virus that is very um, quick to spread to other people, and so it would require large teams of people to mobilize to do contact tracing that is commensurate with the amount of disease in the community. If this was just a, a very slow-moving disease, you might have enough people to follow up on contacts, but this is not, and so it's kind of overwhelming right now, I think. Generally speaking, um, we probably need 10 times the staffing to actually be able to do that in this context. I know that Boston and San Francisco this week are ramping up contact tracing efforts, seeing um, if they were in contact with anyone who was infected with COVID-19. What do you think would be needed for New York City to do the same and have it be effective? The initial step is to start with people you know have the virus and work from there to the people that they can help you identify that should be contacted. To do that with the number of cases that, <laughs> sorry, it's not funny, but you know, it just seems overwhelming that to do that with the number of cases that are already existing would be really difficult. I think the best bet when resources and teams of people are put in place Start with new identified cases moving forward. Once the numbers start to sl hopefully slow down in New York City, 
and the cases become hopefully more manageable for public health workers and hospitals, do you think that contact tracing will be implemented then? I'm hopeful as we move to a, a less intense phase of hospitalizations and, and, and diagnoses and deaths that resources will become available to put more effort into the front end of contact tracing. One of the points is to inform people so they can take proper steps to isolate themselves in addition to seeking out care and treatment. We always say in epidemiology the best way to combat a, a, a disease is to consider yourself infected and, and take precautions not to infect anyone else. If people are told, yes, you did have contact with someone who had COVID-19, that will help people make better decisions around isolation and seeking care and treatment. I do want to ask a little bit about privacy concerns a lot of New Yorkers and Americans have about contact tracing. You have to position it so people understand that it's a benefit to them first and a benefit to their community second. I think we need to make it um, a win-win for people. I would like to see that one of the incentives for contact tracing is we'll be able to give everyone who wants an antibody test, and I think that might go a long way to helping people realize we're looking out for their health. We would also be doing a really good service to understanding how far along in gaining community immunity we are. So knowing that Boston has gotten a thousand people to do contact tracing there, and San Francisco has ramped up efforts to have a hundred people do contact tracing in that city, how many people are needed in New York City to do contact tracing effectively? I mean, I think that what Boston and San Francisco are doing is probably early, and you know, I'm sure they're going to add more more staff for contact tracing. But I think for a, a population as large as the 18 million plus in New York City that you're going to need an army of contact tracing staff, around 20,000 or more. Do you think that's possible? I don't know if it's possible tomorrow, but hopefully it's possible over time. Thank you so much for being here this morning. You're listening to Uptown Radio. There's more to come. Stay with us. You're listening to Uptown Radio. I'm Cecily Moran. And I'm Megan Cattell. Coming up, street vendors have lost the majority of their businesses as people stay home to avoid coronavirus. But unlike many other small businesses, they don't qualify for government aid. And as companies begin to wonder whether they'll be able to reopen, some consider implementing technology that will monitor the temperatures of employees and customers. These stories and more coming up. This time of year is considered the holy season for the Catholic faith. Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter all fell last week. But it's also when Catholic churches bring in a good portion of their funding. As Brett Forrest reports, the pandemic presents a whole new set of financial challenges as churches try to survive. Easter, the holiest day on the Catholic calendar, and a big fundraising day for churches to cover their expenses. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, That's a recording of Monsignor David Casado live-streaming his Easter Mass last Sunday to an empty Brooklyn church, St. Athanasius. Normally, the church would hold thousands over Easter weekend. Monsignor Casado says all those people usually put a lot of money in the basket that gets passed up and down the pews for donations. It keeps you very solvent. The Easter week and Palm Sunday week, those are gifts because 
people are very generous. Over 28,000 tuned into the Facebook Live Mass, but not being there in person didn't generate the same revenue. Once Governor Cuomo limited large gatherings in March, church donations started going down fast. I mean, our usual Sunday collection is about nine to ten thousand dollars. And then came the shutdown, dropping their weekly collection even more. The holy season did bring in uptick with a big online giving campaign, but donations were still forty percent lower. And while the church closing down lowered electricity and heating bills, these are still large buildings to care for, so cuts had to be made. They've had to let go of employees like the church rectory cook and custodians. And Casado has other staff members to pay with big insurance bills. The medical bills still come in. Those are the ones that are, are going to be a real challenge to face for your employees. You don't want to deprive them of that. St. Athanasius serves a large community. It's able to stay afloat for now, but Casado has worries. I got to be honest with you. The quicker we open, the better, but I don't know when that's going to be. John Quaglione is a deputy press secretary for the Diocese of Brooklyn, which includes all Catholic churches in Brooklyn and Queens. That's over one and a half million Catholics. He says his church, St. Anselm in Brooklyn, takes about $13,000 a week to operate. A primary source of, of income for, for our parishes is the weekly collections that, that take place either Saturday evening at Mass or, or Sunday at Mass. Quaglione says the diocese finances are a numbers game at this point. Fewer people means less money. Funding was already on the decline before the pandemic hit. Church attendance is down worldwide, plus parishioners are getting older and then leaving as they retire to places like Florida. So smaller parishes, especially in pandemic-stricken neighborhoods, are struggling more than others. In Queens, two priests have died and one parish lost 15 people to the virus. So there are pockets of the diocese that I do worry about in terms of their ability to overcome the loss of life, the loss of finances and the loss of that sense of community that has been present there. For now, the diocese has to hope their parishioners continue giving online, through the mail, or by dropping off collection envelopes at their church. But what's compelling them to do so? Eileen Lachlan goes to church with John Quaglione at St. Anselm. She still gives weekly. This is where my husband and I were married, and it's our responsibility to help. I'm not saying that everyone should go out and write a check because I realize in this time that finances are, are difficult, but I believe if we can, we should. Speaking from her home in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, Lachlan is both spiritual and practical in her reasoning. My husband and I own our home and we understand that whether we're living in it or not, we have bills to pay. Unlike our little home, these bills are much bigger. Back at St. Athanasius in Brooklyn, Monsignor Casado says he has faith things will work out once this is all over. Brett Forrest, Columbia Radio News. In the days before Easter, Arthur Avenue in the Bronx is usually packed with people buying old-school Italian food, like pane di Pasqua, traditional Italian Easter bread. But no surprise, this Easter was different. And what happens at Italian shops and restaurants in New York has an impact across the Atlantic as Emily Pisacreta explains. Only a handful of Arthur Avenue shops and restaurants are open for business right now. One of them is the Title Brothers, a venerable Bronx institution. They've been doing wholesale and retail sales of Italian food since 1915. Every inch of the store is packed with fresh and canned products. Tomatoes, olive oil, Parmigiano-Reggiano, Pecorino-Romanos. Until March, shoppers would line up along a glass case, shouting and pointing to their chosen hunks of provolone or cuts of prosciutto. But right now, shoppers are sparse. 
Ed Title is the third generation of his family to manage the shop. I know my uncles, they both passed, but they had told me that going through the depression that it was uh, challenging. And it seems like that's what we're going through now. The Title brothers are determined to weather the storm. And for now, they have plenty of goods in stock. But across the Atlantic, Italian agriculture is facing its own crisis. Production hasn't stopped. Grapes and olives keep growing, and cows and sheep need milking no matter what's going on. Springtime is the best season, but <laughs> probably not this year. Marco Forti is based in Grassetto, in Tuscany. He works with the dairies who make Pecorino Toscano cheese, an important product in the region. Most of the production is made right now in the month of April and May. Coronavirus hasn't impacted Tuscany as badly as some other parts of Italy. But strict social distancing rules are still in place, and dairies can only operate with a skeleton staff. Cheese takes twice as long and twice as much money to make. And it's not the kind of thing you can take shortcuts with. Every single pecorino wheel, there is a lot of people, a lot of work, a lot of organization who they work together for guarantee a premium quality of cheese. Much of Italian agriculture functions this way. Consortiums of small, family-owned farms and factories using traditional formulas. And the American market is huge for them. Americans spent 5 billion euros on Italian food and wine in 2018, according to the Italian Trade Agency. Now Italian agriculture faces expensive production challenges and a decrease in demand from the U.S. But even before coronavirus, Italian food was caught up in the trade wars. Jeremy Parzin is an Italian food and wine historian and media consultant. He says importers were really freaked out by the tariffs that started at 25% on cheese. And they were afraid to ship products to the U.S. Until suddenly, in February, the Trump administration announced they wouldn't add more tariffs. It's a day I'll never forget. As long as I live, you know, there was some hope that, okay, let's start shipping the wine again. Let's start ordering. Things are looking up. And then a week later, Italy was being shut down. The combined impact of tariffs and now the coronavirus could put many of these small producers out of business. Parson says that wouldn't just be an economic loss. But it's also to lose a cultural institution, an economic model and cultural institution that is at the backbone of Italian identity. That's a connection that reaches all the way to places like Arthur Avenue. Parson says that shops in the U.S. may not be carrying the kind of specialty products that you can find now at places like the Title Brothers. As the global economy changes in the wake of the coronavirus, our food may change too. Emily Pizzacreta, Columbia Radio News. The outbreak of the coronavirus has hit New York City's businesses hard, and that includes street vendors. According to city council members, street vendors have lost up to 90% of business in recent weeks. But as Megan Cattell reports, unlike their brick-and-mortar neighbors, many of them do not qualify for government aid. New York City's nickname is the Big Apple, but it's also known for being the land of hot dogs and halal chicken over rice. Before the stay-at-home order, food vendors were a common sight, and they are considered essential workers. But with a loss in foot traffic, most of them are now closed, like NY Dosa's, a food cart near Washington Square Park and NYU's campus. The owner, Thiru Kumar, says without regular customers, he's had to close. 
Yeah, we locked down now, so we're not operating right now. Currently closed. NYU closed, and we realized NYU people told me also it's going to take a long time. Since shutting down last month, Kumar has tried to apply for loans and grants to the Federal Small Business Administration and Department of Labor. But Kumar and most other street vendors don't qualify. Only small businesses, with five employees or more, can be considered. But Kumar doesn't have any employees. He runs his business on his own. He says for now, the only way he can cover his rent and buy groceries is by taking out credit card loans. And he's also worried about having enough customers to sustain his business in the future. Because yesterday I called, still they said nothing yet, so I called the labor department. Nobody answered. I was on the phone for a while and then hang up. Even if food vendors like Kumar can qualify for a small business loan, many are struggling to receive help. Ben Wilson, founder of the collective Vendors United, says of the tens of thousands of food vendors he's in contact with throughout the country, no one has told him their applications have been approved. A lot of them got to apply a week early in our group, but the results have been nothing. And we've got some very large vendors because they run multiple carts, and they're not getting it. I have yet to hear of a vendor get their money. Beyond the exclusion from small business aid, many street vendors in New York City face another hurdle, their immigration status. According to the nonprofit Street Vendor Project, most of the 20,000 vendors in New York City are undocumented. That means they don't qualify for the federal government's universal income check of $1,200. Andrew Lim is with New American Economy, an immigration nonprofit. He says this could lead to a larger problem. And with the economy shut down, it's important for people to receive aid so they can keep the economy afloat. They don't have money to spend on themselves or their families, so you know, they may not be able to pay rent, they may not be able to have enough food uh, for their families, um, and this all has you know, ripple effects throughout the economy. New York State Assembly members say they're working on solutions, but the New York State Assembly is closed. It's been suspended since mid-March, so politicians can't tap into any state funds. Instead, they're looking to nonprofits that can help hard-hit communities with fundraising. As for Thiru Kumar, while he waits for aid or his customers to come back, he's trying to stay optimistic. Usually, uh, I don't get much time to hang out with the family, so now everybody home, you know, have more time to, you know, chat and, you know, cleaning yeah, I think I hear your family right now. <laughs> yeah. Megan Cattell, Columbia Radio News. We're starting to see some evidence that cities hit hard by the coronavirus, like New York, may be hitting a plateau. And that has a lot of people thinking about one thing. Let's talk about the reopening of business. If New York City and L.A. and Chicago are still closed in a month or two or three, is the country open? We have to fix what's happening here, but what are we going to do to get back online and the economy back on track? What does that look like? As officials begin to debate when it's safe to open up businesses, some companies are stepping in with technologies that take people's temperatures quickly and without contact. Identifying employees and customers who have a fever might help contain the spread and flatten the curve. But these technologies may have limitations, as Cecily Moran reports. A fever is one of the common symptoms of COVID-19. And so figuring out who has one 
could be both very useful and good business. Since the the you know the pandemic, uh, we've been looking at ways to turn our technology into a solution to help businesses fight against COVID. Yale Goldberg is the chief of staff for Pop ID. It's a California-based tech company that makes devices that use facial scanning to do things like process payments and unlock doors. So what we've done is we've sourced a, a thermal camera to add to our access control device. The device might be installed at the front door of a business or a door to a restaurant's kitchen. When employees walk up to it, the device recognizes them and uses thermal imaging to take their temperature. If it's over 100.4, which is what the CDC considers a fever, it won't let them in and alerts their manager. Goldberg says Pop ID has gotten lots of inquiries from essential businesses. The, the response has been unbelievable. Um, I think that there's a lot of businesses out there right now that, first of all, really care about their employees and also care about creating a safe space for their customers to come into. Since the outbreak, 49 companies have been selling thermal cameras for fever detection. That's according to IPVM, a trade publication that focuses on video surveillance. Charles Roulet is one of its reporters. What we've seen now is just a really unprecedented explosion in demand for these devices. Roulet says thermal cameras used to be kind of a niche technology used for detecting fires in industrial plants or border crossings. So this is a big shift. In places like China, they're becoming much more ubiquitous in public transport and in buildings and things like that. Roley says independent studies have shown that thermal cameras may be more effective than self-reporting, but they do have limitations. One, a lot of people with this disease don't have a fever. And two, the accuracy is difficult to achieve. And there's, uh, there's a lot of things you need to do in order to get accurate readings that people aren't doing right now. The World Health Organization says screening for temperature alone isn't enough, which means as the world wonders when it's safe to go back to normal, thermal cameras could help, but they won't be the definitive answer to the age-old question, are we there yet? Cecily Moran, Columbia Radio News. New York is known for being a noisy city, but lately, due to social distancing, it's been quieter than normal, except for one specific time every day when New Yorkers cheer out their windows, bang pots and pans, and play music. Kira Long looks into how celebrating healthcare workers is helping New Yorkers find community. Every night at seven, Brooklyn-based filmmaker Christian Svanis Kolding heads out to his building stoop with his partner, Adriana. She calls out to a neighbor. Svanis Kolding says the noise-making makes them feel a little less isolated. When you hear the applause coming from other blocks, one definitely gets this sense that this is more than just our neighborhood, that is bigger than just us, and that helps me feel connected to the city as a whole. It happens all over the city. Just before 7 p.m., people lean out of their windows, armed with saucepans, wooden spoons, and anything else they can use to make noise. Time now? Time. For Ellie Gronendel, an educational consultant on the Upper West Side, it's a chance to blow off some steam. I do it every day and I'm becoming more creative. You know, now I have the cowbells. I have a little bungo, so I'm going to try to do the bungos next time. 
Grunendal has an autoimmune disease, so these days she rarely leaves her apartment. I'm stuck here all day long. I'm feeling part of a bigger community uh, has meant a lot to me. It was almost like a healing. It was more like a healing experience. James Sullivan is a journalist and author of Which Side Are You On? A 20th Century American History in 100 Protest Songs. He says the nightly noisemaking in the city reminds him of the collective energy of crowds singing protest songs. You know, it's sort of an outlet for relief or, you know, an expression of exasperation that we're all stuck in this situation together but apart. It's an opportunity to come together safely and make some noise and be joyous about it. Joe Lipinski is an archivist at Trinity Church on Wall Street. He says this kind of community expression has a long history. Typically at the end of the year, like New Year's Eve, the history of that goes back to, you know, warding off spirits and warding off bad omens and things like that at the end of the year to kind of start fresh. Christian, the Brooklyn-based filmmaker, says it's become an important part of his daily life. And on one hand, we're each experiencing this alone. We're apart from each other. And this ritual allows us to acknowledge how we are experiencing it together. Especially in social isolation, New Yorkers are finding a way to be together. Kira Long, Columbia Radio News. And now, for the next installment in our commentary series, reporter Anya Schultz wonders if she'll ever find a love that compares to her parents' epic love story. There's a photo on the fridge in my childhood home that I love. It's of my parents before their prom. They're smiling, my mom in a short black dress with white straps, my dad handsome and tall. It was the 60s in Los Angeles. Randy, my dad, played guitar in a rock band. Vicky, my mom, was quick-witted and smart. But when my mom went off to college, they broke up and lost touch. Not long after, my dad had a terrible hiking accident. It left him paralyzed with a spinal cord injury. After months in the hospital, he moved to rehabilitate up in the mountains near San Francisco. He met a guitar player named Willie, who became his best friend. After years of intense physical therapy, my dad learned how to live in a wheelchair. He drove a car and became a computer programmer. He loved going to concerts and movies with Willie and Willie's girlfriend, Lisa, a hairdresser from Italy. Meanwhile, my mom moved to San Francisco, and despite the sexism of the 70s, she became an attorney. She had serious boyfriend after serious boyfriend, but none of them felt right. She still thought about my dad. She heard he was in some type of accident, but didn't know how to find him. One day, my mom went to get her haircut from the same hairdresser she'd been seeing for eight years, Lisa, Willie's girlfriend. When Lisa complained her back hurt, my mom said, you should call my chiropractor. But Lisa said, no, if I was going to see one, it would be from my friend who's in a wheelchair. She went on and on about her friend and how wonderful he was. My mom asked his name. Lisa said, Randy. My mom turned white. After 20 years, my parents' reconnection was instant. People asked my mom why she'd want to be with a disabled person. She said my dad was the least disabled person she'd ever dated. But their relationship wasn't always easy. My dad almost died of cancer when I was three, and over the years, he lost physical function of his body. When he could no longer lift a fork, my mom fed him bites of food. When he couldn't talk, my mom would ask Alexa to play John Prine or Jeff Beck or whatever my dad wanted to hear. Through all of this, my dad still made her laugh. Willie and Lisa split up years ago, but they're best friends. Willie played guitar for my dad in the hospital before he died. Lisa cuts everyone in my family's hair. As I get older, I worry that I'll never find love as strong as my parents. How could I meet someone that important on a dating app with a name I can't even remember? I called Lisa to ask her what she thinks.
Do you think that I'm screwed because I have such high expectations now? No, no, Anya Bella, no. You are the fruit of your mom and dad, of this beautiful love story. You come from a love, love, love. We have to believe that what we don't know, the beautiful things can happen in our life. Even if we make a decision on our own, Anya, that doesn't mean it's going to happen. We don't know. We have to have open heart and to know that we are guided somehow in a beautiful, loving way, like your mom and dad. I like thinking about the 20 years when my parents weren't together, how my dad learned to live a happy and full life in a wheelchair, and how my mom built a career and ended up becoming best friends with her hairdresser. I like thinking that's where I'm at now, planting the seeds for my own life, going to graduate school, moving to a new city. Maybe my first photo with my future partner has already been taken, or maybe it hasn't. I don't know if I'll have a remarkable love story like my parents, or if I'll meet someone online or at the checkout stand or at a bar. My parents have taught me not to focus too much on that. Instead, to keep doing the little things, help out my friends, trust my decisions, and get my hair cut. Well, that does it for this edition of Uptown Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. Our foreman today was executive producer Jamaris Perez, running the show from Miramar, Florida. Leading our staff of reporters was senior producer Lauren Peace in Rochester, New York, with help from Brett Forrest in Denver, Colorado, and Emily Pizzacreta in Brooklyn, New York. Director Will Walkie coordinated our production from Duxbury, Massachusetts. Senior editor Lucas Woods in Brooklyn and assistant editor Kira Long in Manhattan led our copy team. Anya Schultz managed our website today from San Francisco, California, and Sarah Gelbard brought us today's news from Rochester, New York. Our instructors, Sally Herships, Tracy Samuelson, and Camille Peterson advised our staff from Brooklyn, New York, and instructor Ben Shapiro from Western Massachusetts. I'm Megan Cattell in Manhattan. And I'm Cecily Moran in Exeter, Rhode Island. We'd like to dedicate this show to Brett Forrest's grandfather, Lee Nisley. He passed away last week in Salinas, California at the age of 95 from natural causes. Uptown Radio is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and uptownradio.org on Friday evenings. From all of us here at Uptown Radio, thanks for listening and stay safe.